Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And this week, I think we're just going to jump right in. I mean, we're all probably still in quarantine, unless you're listening to this in the future. (laughs) Uh, And I was going to try to do, I know we've talked about, like, we've done a lot of doctor episodes recently to kind of give shout outs to the awesome work that nurses and doctors are doing and have done in the past. And I was going to try to break from that and do something not coronavirus related. But then I was listening to a Sawbones episode about masks. Oh. And they gave a shout out and talked about this one doctor and researcher who did some early work on the importance of wearing surgical masks in operating rooms. And I was like, oh, that would be kind of tangentially related. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about about this woman. Wow, cool. I'm excited. So shout out to Sawbones for finding my woman this week. <laughs> I love when people do my work for me. Yeah. All right. So today we're going to be talking about... Uh, <laughs> today we're going to be talking about Alice... Uh, Hamilton. Okay. <laughs> What's so funny? I'm trying to, f- I was trying to find a way to be like, like make a playoff Alexander Hamilton. And so then I have written like Alice Kander Hamilton, but it's not good. <laughs> I also would have just thought that's her name because I don't know her yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so we're going to be talking about Alice Hamilton. Cool. I'm mm-hmm. excited. But not Alexander Hamilton, Alex Kander Hamilton. <laughs> I, I do not believe they were related. Okay, okay. All right. So Alice Hamilton was born on February 27th in 1869 in Manhattan to Gertrude and Montgomery Hamilton. Mm. The Hamiltons were relatively well off, so she was kind of uh, definitely an upper raised like upper upper class and she had this sheltered childhood in fort wayne indiana with her wealthy extended family Hmm. and the estate that she kind of grew up on encompassed a three block area of what is now downtown fort wayne so they had a huge plot of land like smack dab in what's now fort wayne yeah even just because it's called an estate i imagine it was large Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so most of Alice's family lived on inherited wealth. Mm. And so, you know, didn't yeah. really have jobs necessarily, but maybe helped out in the community. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> wow, uh, you're really winning me over here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Alice uh, was homeschooled, and she had she was the second oldest of five siblings. So she had three sisters and a brother, 
And as was the tradition for Hamilton women, she went to complete her early education at Miss Porter's Finishing School for Young Ladies in Farmington, Connecticut. Uh, So this was like when she was 17 to 19 years old. So it's kind of like before you would go to, I don't know if they went, many people went to college, but it was at the end of your education. Okay. Okay. Cool. So although Alice lived this privileged uh, childhood and had inherited wealth, she wanted to make an impact on the world and so chose medicine to financially support herself and to um, contribute to society. So her family was not super thrilled that she was going to go into medicine, which is kind of the opposite of, I feel like nowadays, you'd be like, oh, that's such a like noble thing. And then back then, yeah. like, oh, wait, you're not just going to live on your inherited wealth. I mean, gonna go out ladies the didn't world? go into medicine then. She wasn't no, being a didn't. proper lady, which I No, it was like a, a – she was like sullying herself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why that just made me feel like very viscerally grossed out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> During this time, like as a child, she was, had been an avid reader. And so she cites – depictions of medical missionaries as a source of her inspiration for wanting to be a doctor. Wow. Since she really had no training in the sciences at all. Okay. So, like, finishing school and her homeschooling, they did not prepare you for, you know, a scientific education. Right. So after she went to finishing school, when she realized she wanted to be a doctor... Um, and study medicine. Alice was taught science by a high school teacher in Fort Wayne, and she went and she attended Fort Wayne College of Medicine to study anatomy to kind of get some of these basic science knowledge that she would need. Cool, nice. And then in 1892, she enrolled at the University of Michigan Medical School and studied under quote a remarkable group of men. <laughs> Wait, what's that a quote from? Herself? Her, I think. I think oh, okay. her. Yeah. Gotcha. Like some guys writing this. <laughs> <laughs> we were a remarkable group of men, a stylish. <laughs> Actually, we're responsible for her success, our remarkable group of men, that is. <laughs> so her last year of study at the Michigan Medical School, she served on on one of the doctor's staff, doing rounds, taking medical histories, and doing clinical laboratory work. And she earned her medical degree in 1893. Wow. Is she the first medical? Do we know when the first medical degree was for, like, a lady? I think it was... Oh, wait, no. It was definitely before this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I Um, I don't know what time I was thinking of. Because, yeah, Civil War. Yeah, we've already talked about We had about some it. people, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got my timelines mixed up. It was still very rare, but it wasn't mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. Yeah. So the following year after she got her medical degree, Alice interned at the Northwestern Hospital for Women and Children in Minneapolis and the New England Hospital for Women and Children in Roxbury to gain clinical experience and I don't think she re- – she didn't seem to really like that experience. Uh-oh. They – both of the hospitals were relatively disappointing to her. Like, they didn't have all their shit together, stuff like that. They weren't <laughs> utilizing her in a way oh, that she felt okay. was, like, very useful. Hmm. 
And so Alice, during the time when she was doing these internships, she had already decided that she didn't want to do clinical work or open up a medical practice. Instead, oh, wow. she okay. so she like got this experience, but was like, this isn't for me. Yeah. So she returned to the University of Michigan to study bacteriology. Ooh, love that. I don't know if she got a degree from this, but she was called a resident graduate, which I'm not sure okay. what that is. Um, and yeah. she was also a lab assistant. So she okay. got, whether or not she got a degree in bacteriology, she had a lot of, she acquired a bunch of skills and knowledge during this time yeah. about okay. bacteriology. Cool. And she also, during this time, began to develop an interest in public health. Nice. So in 1885, Alice and her older sister Edith traveled to Germany to advance their education. So Edith was, um, she studied the classics. So Edith Hamilton has written a bunch of like classic books, like oh. one's called Mythology. Um, but they're like still pretty well known if you're interested in classics. Okay. She's pretty okay. well known. And so her and Edith uh, went to Germany and Edith went to study the classics and attend lectures while Alice went to study bacteriology and pathology. So she was really into bacteria by that time, I guess. All about the bacteria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Love, love it. Mm -hmm. I know. I know you would. <laughs> uh, and so both the women faced some opposition in Germany, however. So while in Frankfurt, while Frankfurt welcomed Alice, she was not allowed to study in Berlin and she experienced okay. sexism and discrimination oh, at universities gotcha. in Munich and Leipzig. So they kind of traveled Fine. around Germany, getting experience in some places were more welcoming than others. Interesting. I wonder, yeah. I guess, just the cultures of the different. Yeah. I mean, we had all the universities here. Like some of them let women in. Some of them didn't. Some yeah. Some of them were weird. True. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure the same thing was in Germany. So upon her return to the States in September 1896, she continued a year of postgraduate studies at Johns Hopkins Medical uh, School. Wow. Yeah, she, she went to all the places. Yeah. And then in 1897, Hamilton accepted an offer at the Women's Medical School of Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. She was a, I don't think I say this, but she was a professor. Oh. So she was a pathology <laughs> professor. That's yeah. cool. Okay. Nice. And so while she was there, she fulfilled this long-time ambition of becoming a member and resident of Hull House. Have you ever heard of Hull House? I don't think so, no. So it's this settlement house, which I guess at the time was this idea from the reformist social movement where it was uh, – a settlement house was one where middle-class women lived and they shared knowledge and culture and tried to alleviate the poverty of their low lower income neighbors so they would set oh, up wow. these like settlement houses in areas that were relatively poor and then like wealthy women would live there and try to contribute to their neighbors either teaching classes or like making like pop-up yeah. like medical facilities or like child rearing stuff like that sounds like a decent way to give back. Yeah, I'm sure there's like yeah. some issues with it, but yeah. I think I think it was well intentioned and a lot of a lot of the people who worked who lived in those settlement houses were also, you know, suffragists and working for yeah, uh, okay. civil rights and stuff like that. All right, cool. But yeah, so she lived in this Hull house 
during the time and she would like do a bunch of activities with them in the evenings and then she was a pathology professor by day. Wow, sounds busy. <laughs> yeah, so she had this active life at Hull House where she lived there for 22 years from 1897 to 1919. Dang, okay. She taught English and art, directed men's fencing and athletic clubs. <laughs> Cool. Why is it Operate, men's fencing? <laughs> I don't know why specifically men's fencing. I also don't know what knowledge of men's fencing did she have that she was yeah. eligible for this. I don't know. Rich people just have skills. You know, they just like learn those things. Yeah. I feel like some au pair or something taught uh-huh. her. <laughs> Once taught her fencing. <laughs> So she operated this well baby clinic for impoverished mothers and children in her neighborhood and then also visited sick neighbors as kind of this um, giving them like medical advice. Okay, nice. She was a very busy lady. Yeah. During this time. So she was devoting herself to teaching, research and service projects all at the same time. And she says that left her feeling inadequate at all three. Oh, which I feel. yeah. It's just if you're spreading yourself too mm-hmm. thin. She also said that her male colleagues who were not serving their communities were attaining greater renown yeah. for their research. So that was another thing right. that bo- bothered her. Not surprising. Has, yeah, still the case in some yeah. cases. <laughs> so she was also active in women's rights and peace movements. She went to both the first and the second International Congress of Women that were held in uh, Europe, one in 1919 and the other one in 1915. Okay. And while living at Hull House, kind of in these poorer neighborhoods, she became gravely aware of the negative health effects that were caused by many dangerous work trades. Oh. For example, exposure to carbon monoxide and to lead poisoning. So she was seeing oh, yeah. the like negative effects in her neighbors of their jo- like due to their jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so through this exposure, she became interested in occupational injuries and illnesses and trying to merge her medical science and social reform together to improve the health of American workers. Wow, my gosh. I can kind of see where this is going Mm -hmm. since you mentioned masks before. (laughs) Yeah. The Women's Medical School at Northwestern University unfortunately closed in 1902, and so Alice then had to transition jobs, and she took up a position at the Memorial Institute of Infectious Diseases, also in Chicago. So she, like, luckily didn't have to move. I think it was not too much of a... It was a relatively seamless transition. And while there, her job changed a bit. So she started investigating uh, a typhoid epidemic in Chicago and then started transitioning to investigating industrial diseases. Ooh. So some of her epidemiology work focused on identifying the causes of typhoid and tuberculosis in her local community around Hull House. So she was really like, you know, a, a disease detective in her neighborhood. I wonder how, like, so do you know what she did to actually detect the diseases? Just go around and interview people or? Yeah, a lot of, so um, I know mostly what she did for when she worked with like industrial illnesses. But she did a lot of going to the areas where people were getting sick Mm. and Mm. um, also interviewing people, trying to kind of trace people's contacts back to 
some point where they wow. might have been infected. Mm-hmm. And then also she was doing like pathology and uh, clinical tests. Dang. And then in 1905, Alice published an article for the Journal of the American Medical Association reporting on experiments that measured the amount of strepto, is it streptococcal bacteria mm-hmm. uh, that is expelled when scarlet fever patients cough or cry. Wow. And she also measured the amount of strep bacteria from healthy doctors and nurses when they were talking or coughing. So figuring out, you know, how much bacteria actually gets transmitted in the air mm-hmm. when people are talking. And this is, like, very related to what we're trying to figure out now of, like, how far COVID can actually move and how much we're expelling and yada, yada, yeah. yada. So she was doing that back in the day, looking at streptococcal bacteria. And she says, quote, I was told by a student in a large medical college in Chicago that he had often noticed at the clinics of a certain surgeon that when the light was from a certain direction, he could see from his seat in the amphitheater a continuous spray of saliva coming from the mouth of the surgeon Ugh. while he discoursed to the class and conducted his operation. <laughs> so, OK, so this is pre-masked. Yes, this is yeah. pre-masks. He's yep. doing a surgery with no mask on, getting a bunch yep. of saliva in a body. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In somebody's <laughs> body cavity. Yeah, yeah. She says, quote, obviously protection of the mouth of some sort as to catch and impression the drops of sputum. Sputum. I don't know. <laughs> uh, should be a r- routine precaution for surgeons and for surgical nurses during operations. Mm-hmm. The combination of what she was hearing from students at medical colleges along with her research on how far streptococcal bacteria could actually um, be transmitted during coughs. Due to those two things in combination, she argued in uh, her er journal article for the use of masks during surgery. Wow. And it should be noted that she wasn't the first to suggest this. Somebody suggested it in like 1897. I'm sure there were other people that were suggesting it. Yeah. Um, But she had a lot of clout and sway, and I think people were more likely to listen to her. But of course, you know, things go slowly. So it wasn't common practice for surgeons to wear masks until about 1920 still. Oh, my God. But she was a very early advocate of the importance of using masks to control the spread of infectious diseases. Yeah, through sputum. Through sputum. Which is the the new technical word for spit, I'm guessing. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's what spit is. Never heard of that word. I love it. So during this time was the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. The Industrial Revolution had made industrial medicine or the study of work-related illnesses increasingly important as industries led to new dangers in the workplace that we couldn't really predict and we weren't regulating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in 1907, Alice was studying the existing literature on industrial medicine and noticed that essentially nobody was studying this in America. People were studying it in Europe, but no one was looking at it mm-hmm. in the U.S., And so she focused her attention on this issue for the rest of her life and published her first article in industrial medicine in 1908. So she'd already kind of been doing it, but she became fully focused on it at this point. Yeah, like she had been a sort of this public health worker Mm -hmm. for a while, but not 
necessarily like linking industry practices yes. to yeah. you know or like me not formally linking those things in research articles yeah exactly so she was appointed by the Illinois governor as a medical investigator to the newly formed Illinois Commission on Occupational Diseases, and this began mm. her long career in public health slash workplace safety in wow. 1910. There, she focused the commission's attention to industrial poisons such as lead, and her mm. efforts resulted in the passage of the first workers' compensation laws in Illinois, <gasps> as well as subsequently in other states, which required employers to make safety precautions to protect their workers. Wow. Yeah. So we didn't have any of that shit before. Yeah. I'm guessing I I would hope like workers were probably complaining and had probably made these like links in their minds about like, look, I'm working with these materials and they're they're making me sick. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you need people like her who can formalize this in a research setting and like communicate with lawmakers and medical mm-hmm. communities to really ugh. yeah and figure out specifically what is causing people's illnesses right So by 1916, Hamilton was America's leading authority on lead poisoning. Wow. And she continued to study industrial medicine, including uh, the effects of carbon monoxide, mercury, and hydrogen sulfide. Mm. She testified in 1925 at a public health service conference on the dangers to human health of having lead in gasoline. So at that point, we didn't have unleaded gasoline. We had leaded gasoline. Scary. However, of course, they did not heed her warnings and continued to have leaded gasoline for the next, like, 60 years or something. Oh, my gosh. And in in 1988, the EPA estimated that 68 million children (gasps) had been exposed to highly toxic levels of lead. Oh, my God. Um, over the past 60 years due to lead from leaded fuels. Wow. Like, I don't know why children are um, that close to fuel, but back in the day. Yeah. Or maybe. Huh. They, you know, children were probably <laughs> driving those cars back in the day. Maybe, like, if they operated any vehicles at home or. Mm. Like on a farm or something, or even just machinery in in Mm -hmm. homes of some kind. But that's very scary. Yes. Because lead causes mental health problems, right? Yes. It's the main uh, illness it causes. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know all of the simple symptoms, but it's especially bad for children because I think of their developing brains. Right, right. Developmental problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So even though this uh, public health service conference didn't really heed her warnings, Hamilton continued to work on the damaging effects of lead as a special investigator Mm. for the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Oh, my gosh. Kind of going back to how she her method for studying these things. She used a combination of personal visits to factories Mm -hmm. to conduct interviews with workers. Uh, She compiled details of diagnoses and poisoning cases. And she also uh, used the emerging toxicology laboratory science field to um, put all these things together, interviews, science, 
things like that, in order to get an idea of what was actually happening at these factories. Yeah, she She really was kind of a detective. Mm -hmm. That's cool. She she would sneak into factories without (gasps) permission also. Whoa. To try to see what their labor practices were. Uh, And she would also have you know, talk to factory workers over a beer to hear their plight. So Wow. What a lady. Apparently on one occasion, she was taking a she was exhausted. She was taking a nap in a mining shack. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know, in between her investigations. Uh-huh. And a miner saw her and thought she was a prostitute and so propositioned <gasps> her. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm trying to oh save your ass. Gosh. I'm not a prostitute. That actually like, fi- happened fine, to a professor but... of mine. What? She was um studied these forests next to the University of Rochester. Okay. And I guess like truckers would pull off the highway and go <gasps> into that forest to like Yeah. Like it was a known spot for that. Like there gotcha. was it was a big park and she studied the trees in the park. <laughs> And she was just, like, there one day, and some trucker, like, <laughs> oh, my God, was just like, hey, what are you doing here? And she would, like, dress kind of like a trucker, in, like, her field outfit, and had, like, yeah. a hat on and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think they yeah. thought she was another trucker. Anyway, that's what <laughs> she said, at least. So, Oh, they, they thought she might... was also be looking for some yes yes some action exactly yes love it they didn't think she was a prostitute they thought she was another trucker so a little different but just (laughs) things women have to deal with (laughs) (laughs) on the job and men you know yeah i'm sure if if she was a man they would also think she was looking for yes sex yes love it okay (laughs) but yeah so she had to deal with that She was always working, investigating. I like she was sleeping in a mine shaft, so they just assume she's a prostitute. That's where all the, uh, you know, that's where (laughs) it all happened. Were there other prostitutes there ever or sex workers? Sorry. I really don't know much about this situation. Yes. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. (laughs) Yep. So her work on lead was part of a landmark study that she did on these da- the damaging effects of lead, um, and it was the beginning of the specialized field of industrial medicine really being used and studied in the United States. And her findings were extremely persuasive and caused sweeping health reforms that changed laws and general practice to improve the health of workers that's amazing yeah so she she got it done and really (laughs) induced societal change yeah overall her upbringing taught her how to balance publicity and diplomacy so Factory owners would often let her into their plants because they knew she wasn't going to exaggerate her findings. Mm, And she was also known that she would give them options to improve the conditions for their workers and try to help them fix the, um, the problems that they had at their factories before she would resort to talking to the public. So they had an option for it kind of being kept quiet if they were going to 
change things. Mm. But if they, you know, weren't going to help fix the problems for the workers, then she would go to the court of public opinion and, like, you know, get people to be uh, outspoken and shame the right the operations and and talk to lawyers and things like that so i think she had a good i think the factory owners were willing to kind of work with her to try to improve conditions because she was a straight shooter and they like knew what to expect if she came to their factory yeah that's great so she also during world war one the u.s army sought her to help them with this mysterious ailment that was striking workers at munition plants in new jersey And she was tasked with leading a team to determine the cause of this ailment. She led the team of experts and deduced that TNT, which was used for munitions, was sickening Uh the workers and recommended that they wash their protective clothing at the end of each shift, which actually apparently solved the problem. Oh, that's great. Like a relatively simple, like, okay, you're covered in TNT. You need to wash your, like, you need to wash your protective clothing between shifts. Yeah, I'm glad that there was a solution, (laughs) a simple one. So she also, I mean, she worked on all sorts of things. So she Mm -hmm. worked on studying carbon dioxide poisoning among American steel workers, um, mercury poison, carbon dioxide poisoning. I don't know what is happening at steel workers. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it was, maybe it was carbon monoxide, which... No, I mean, you can have... Carbon dioxide. There's too much... I guess there could be too much CO2. Yeah. I just wasn't sure how you would... Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure. Uh, she also studied mercury poisoning of hatters, so like hat makers. That's why... Okay. you know about the mercury poisoning and hatters? No, I mean, I know, just know thermometers. I don't know what they used it for, but they used mercury when they were making like top hats, like fancy hats. Yeah. And so the the term mad hatter is because a lot of hatters got mercury poisoning and kind of went insane. Oh, I had no idea. So the mad hatter in like Alice in Wonderland wow. has, you know, mercury poisoning. <laughs> See, I always thought he was mad and then that made him a hatter. You know? No, I didn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> Like, he just loved hats because he was crazy. Nope, it's it's the hats that caused him to go crazy. Wow. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. So she worked on that, exposed mercury poisoning of hatters, and she also worked on this debilitating hand condition of jackhammer workers. Oh, which is, like, their hands get shaky or... Yeah, I'm guessing, like, that's gotta be bad to... Yeah. She also investigated something called spastic anemia which <gasps> was also known as dead fingers <gasps> uh, among limestone cutters i don't know what that means <sighs> spastic anemia what i'm thinking is like spastic so your hands are kind of your fingers are like moving mm-hmm. and anemia so they're like white they're like uncontrollably moving and all like white and ghostly is what i'm oh, thinking dead fingers is horrible <laughs> so scary yeah uh and she also studied pulmonary tuberculosis among tombstone carvers so i think they were getting a lot of like dust into their lungs from carving on big rock wow she's 
She's everywhere. She's doing all sorts of things. It's just a real variety of of issues. Yeah. I know. She was also a member of the committee for the scientific investigation of the mortality from tuberculosis in dusty trades. That's all the title of this committee. The Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Mortality from Tuberculosis in Dusty Trades. In Dusty Trades. Wow. That's a really specific committee. <laughs> um, yeah. So she was on that, and her work laid the groundwork for widespread reform in these, quote, dusty trades. So I'm guessing things that just cause you to be... Um, creating a lot of dust or small particulate matters that then enter and damage your lungs. Yeah, definitely. In 1919, Hamilton accepted a position as assistant professor in the newly formed Department of Industrial Medicine, which is now known as the School of Public Health at Harvard Medical School. Wow, that sounds pretty fancy. Very fancy. So yeah, she Mm -hmm. was... This made her the first woman appointed to a Harvard University as Harvard University faculty in any field. What? So she was the first female Harvard professor. Wow, that's incredible. I would have thought they would have had a female professor earlier, but I guess they had that the women's school Radcliffe, right? Yeah. So maybe Yeah, that's interesting. But it's funny so she's you know a professor at this department of industrial medicine and women are still not allowed to matriculate at harvard medical school so there's no female students allowed i wonder what her students thought of her if they were mean or i don't know if they respected her or what yeah, I don't know. I didn't see anything about that, but yeah. it would be interesting to know how she felt there. Yeah. So it was such a shock that like a woman was hired to Harvard that her appointment was hailed by the New York Tribune with the headline, A woman on Harvard faculty, the last citadel has fallen. The sex Ugh. has come into its own. Ugh. <laughs> What? (laughs) So dramatic. I know. Um, And her comment, I guess, I think they asked her, so like her comment for this article was, yes, I am the first woman on the Harvard faculty, but not the first one who should have been appointed. Nice. Yeah. Got him. Yeah, got him. (laughs) (laughs) So from 1919 to 1935, she was on the Harvard faculty. And Hamilton was never promoted during this time, those 16 years. She was assistant professor the whole time. What? She was also excluded from social activities, uh, could not attend the faculty club or enter the Harvard Union, and she was not allowed her quota of football tickets that faculty were entitled to. Okay. I mean, Uh, what a weird thing to, like... (laughs) (laughs) A weird stance to make. Yeah. If that were me, I'd just be like, fine, but I'd be all mad about it. Yeah, I'd be mad even though I wouldn't wouldn't want them, but I want to have them. Yeah. She was also not allowed to march in the university's commencement ceremonies. So Uh. when faculty, you know, don their cap and gown, she wasn't allowed to go to those. That's BS. I know. 
So, uh, Hamilton continued to research dangerous trades throughout her life. She wrote a landmark report for the U.S. Department of Labor on health hazards in copper mines and limestone quarries. She also wrote Industrial Poisons in the United States in 1925, which was the first American textbook on industrial medicine. And she also wrote uh, Industrial Toxicology, which was a like a follow-up that are both, like, I think, widely still circulated. Yeah. Throughout her life, she remained an activist for social reform efforts. She was interested in the, quote, radical ideas of civil liberties, peace, <laughs> birth control. How dare she? Those are too wild. <laughs> so wild. And also she protecting wants- your labor force. She wants peace. Ugh. Get out of here. Stop being so <laughs> radical. <laughs> That's crazy. What a crazy woman. (laughs) While she was at Harvard, she also was the only, from 1924 to 1930, she was the only woman to serve on the League of Nations Health Committee. Wow. Uh, She also visited the Soviet Union in 1924 and Nazi Germany in 1933 and wrote an article for the New York Times (gasps) entitled, quote, The Youth Who Are Hitler's Strength. Oh describing gosh. the exploitation of youth between the two world wars. Aww. Just, you know, some like, just some random, odd things. Yeah, some things that, she like, did. Yeah. Uh, in 1935, she returned from Harvard and became a medical consultant to the U.S. Division of Labor Standards. So she kind of semi-retired. Yeah. She also served as president of the National Consumers League, which I don't know what that mm. is. But yeah, she was president either, of it. But... Wow. She spent her retirement in Haydlime, Connecticut, with her sister Margaret, who they'd bought a house together up there. And she Aww. remained an active writer. She died of a stroke in her home on September 22nd in 1970 at the age of 101. Yeah, I was about to say, like, damn. <laughs> She's fucking old. Yeah. I feel like so many of these life. women live, like, freaking long lives. It's amazing. Yeah. Doing something right. Mm-hmm. So, kind of in summary, Alice Hamilton fought relentlessly for 60 years to document and improve the health conditions of American workers. During this time, the condition of the worker went from workers who weren't even given like coveralls and whose lungs were coated with lead because of such poor working conditions and oh. who had really high death rates to um, a situation where workers' health was being closely monitored and federally protected by the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which was passed just three months after her death. Oh, okay. Wow. So she really led the way from these like terrible, terrible working conditions for mm-hmm. workers in a variety of different fields and pushed for not only the science to figure out what was going wrong and how to fix it, but also protections and you know, maintaining and promoting the rights of these workers to yeah. work in safe conditions. Like, your job shouldn't put you in harm's way. Oh, yeah. Things we still have to fight today. Exactly, yeah. So, I just thought she was a badass lady who, you know, knew the importance yeah. of PPE and masks and all mm-hmm. that stuff and workers' rights. And it's ever important now as it was then. Definitely. Wow. So yeah, that's Alice Hamilton. I love her. She's awesome. Yeah, she seems like a cool, cool lady. I would take a nap with her in a miner's shack. (laughs) 
That's insane. <laughs> I don't think I would do that. Uh, I mean, if you have enough women in a minor shack, it is technically a brothel in some states, oh, right? My. You know? You're not allowed to have more than six, actually. Yeah. So crazy. All right. So that's my story. All right. So shall we move on to our women? We shall. We shall. I'm so caffeinated. (laughs) I'm caffeinated, but it's slowly dissipating, and I'm going to need more once we finish up here. So women who work, that's our segment where we give a shout out or shout outs to a badass ladies making history today. And so I thought, or in looking at, at articles and studies I just couldn't do more coronavirus. I couldn't I think do that's more. Wise. So I, I picked something totally outside of our, outside of even our planet. Ooh. <laughs> and let's see, I picked a study that was led by Caitlin Allers, who is an associate professor of physics and astronomy at Bucknell University nice. in Pennsylvania. And she and her group of researchers were able to measure or figured out a technique for measuring wind speeds on brown dwarfs for the first time ever. <laughs> wind speeds on brown dwarfs. Such weird names for uh, like for different planet types of like stars yeah. and planets. Well, so brown dwarfs, because I had to look this up, are objects that are too large to be called planets and too small to be called stars. <laughs> oh. Technically. Interesting. So, yeah. So they, and they aren't stars also because they're not dense enough to convert hydrogen into helium by nuclear fusion. So they okay. aren't emitting light in the way that stars do. Gotcha. And so they're only like even recently able to be detected through infrared mostly huh. um, so they're how we low figured out. density big low yeah. density they're almost like giant balls of gas and some dust but much less dust than stars and much less dense sorry than stars gotcha okay so yeah they're mainly detectable through use of infrared telescopes So usually when astronomers measure wind speed, they compare the motion of a gaseous atmosphere to the motion of a planet's solid surface, right? Okay. So, like, we would measure wind – like, if we were looking at Earth from somewhere else, we would be looking at, like, the cloud's movement versus the planet's rotation or something like that. Yeah, like, relative to the planet's rotation. Yeah. So that you could see what's kind of – uh, being driven by the planetary motion versus the, just the motion of the air. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Because wind is like motion that's faster than just how the planet is, is technically yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but because brown dwarfs are almost entirely gas, they define winds as the gases on the outermost surface that move independently or faster than the core gases. Yeah, so it's okay, not that, makes that sense. different, but it's mm-hmm. just a little bit of a different definition. 
And it makes it harder also then to like even determine what's wind or how to measure wind. So Jupiter is also very gaseous. (laughs) That makes Jupiter ate too many beans and is very gaseous. Um, I think that's happening to a lot of us these days. Like, what do I have in my cabinet? Oh, I got beans. Yeah. So, Mm. and they had observed that the rotation speeds of Jupiter were were different if they were measured by radio observations, which record, like, radio waves, than if you measure their speeds by infrared observations. So they were getting different recordings essentially of how fast jupiter rotates okay by measuring infrared or radio waves does that kind of make sense yeah and they realized that it's because the radio emissions reflect the speed of jupiter's highly magnetic core Mm, okay while infrared measurements are coming from the top of jupiter's atmosphere okay yeah so they're measuring two different parts of Jupiter, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so they determined that, you know, since brown dwarfs are similarly mostly made of gases, they could probably compare core speeds to atmospheric speeds in brown dwarfs by comparing radio observations to infrared observations. Nice. Yeah, which nobody had ever really pieced together before. Um, So that was really cool. Very cool. And so, yeah, after doing that, they found that a nearby brown dwarf's atmospheric speed was about 1,425 miles per hour. Oh, God. (laughs) Which is about 230 miles per hour faster than Jupiter's wind speed and obviously faster than our usual wind speed. Yeah. So Whoa, we could not yeah. build houses on, well, we couldn't build houses on a kind of amorphous <laughs> atmospheric mass anyways, but we definitely can't <laughs> with those wind speeds. Yeah. So pretty incredible. And it's exciting because, you know, now we have this method where you could presumably, that could presumably be used to measure wind speeds of not only other brown dwarfs, but of other extrasolar planets where... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can just compare these two measurements and make um, some assumptions, you know, and then have an estimate for their atmospheric wind speeds. So, yeah, I thought it was a really cool study. Nice to think about something outside of our our quarantined apartments. <laughs> yeah, so far away from our quarantine apartments. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just a very cool study overall. I love that. Yeah, so that's my shout-out for this week. That's great. I love when you can make things that apply to a bunch of different situations. Yeah, you know? and it seemed... And they were like... Seems like seems a very so useful obvious. Method. Yeah. And when they were talking about it, they're like, we don't really know why nobody had done this before. So <laughs> stuff like that's kind of funny. It seems yeah. obvious in hindsight, but mm-hmm. you need a creative mind to kind of think of it in the first place. So Yep. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. I think okay. that's it. I think that's it. All right. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something cool and enjoyed it. Um, had a little distraction from life. Yeah. If you have time and you want to, we'd love 
if you'd rate, review, or subscribe. You know, we're also at home, and we like to refresh and find <laughs> new reviews. It makes yeah, us happy. Definitely. <laughs> I need new things to read. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, if, if you have some time, we'd love a review. It helps people find the podcast. It makes our day better. Uh, we yeah. read all of them. I, if Emma finds one first, she sends it to me. If I find it, I send <laughs> it to her, and we, like, send a lot of emojis. Hearts. It warms our hearts. Uh, so we'd really appreciate that. And thanks always to Caitlin Friesen for all of her awesome art yeah. and to Artichoke for our awesome theme music. And as always, go, go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself. Okay, bye. bye. <laughs> bye